Hello and welcome back to Looking Forward, the podcast of events and ideas brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. This week, in our search for truth, we tackle the Hain Royal Commission, have a hard look at the banning of centre-right voices on social media platforms and try and figure out why Australia needs another regulator, this time for sport. It's a great Looking Forward panel we have for you today. First of all, the IPA's Director of Economics, Daniel Wilde. Hello. Secondly, RMIT Professor of Institutional Economics, Sinclair Davidson. Hi. And of course, my co-host, Chris Berg, who is also with the RMIT. In our final segment, I'll be asking the panellists what they've been reading, watching and listening to, so hang around for that. But first, for those who came in late, Chris, why have we created Looking Forward? Well, Looking Forward is a politics of ideas and um, events. Uh, it's named after the first publication of the Institute of Public Affairs called Looking Forward, of course, which really set the stage for the private enterprise movement, the free market movement in the late um, in the second half of the 20th century, and we hope to do the same with this for the 21st. Small ambitions. Small ambitions. We, Small can, ambitions. we can definitely manage that. So first up, uh, we're going to talk about what's typically called the Banking Royal Commission, but uh, just for the record, its full title is the Royal Commission into Misconduct in the Banking, Superannuation and Financial Services Industry. Uh, the report was delivered to the government on Friday and uh, released this week. Dr. Berg. Yeah, so this this report has dominated um, Australian politics over the last couple of days. Um, it has a number, in fact, a very large number of recommendations. Um, but by and large, it doesn't have any major um, uh, major recommendations that would really fundamentally shake up shake up the financial system, which I know the Labor Party has been been quite up, well internally quite upset about. I've seen Wayne Swan complaining on television and Twitter that we're not cracking down on executive salaries and so forth. Um, uh, there's a few things that I think are interesting and it would be worth talking about, but but fundamentally there's not a huge amount of change in the fundamental structures of our banking sector as a result of this. There's a lot of things that we have to be concerned about, but I also think that the um, – it's a little bit of a damn squib. We've seen bank stocks go up rather than down in response to the um, recommendations of the Royal Commission. Um, it, it's an interesting report, but it's not a major, major change. Well, I actually think it's it's a bit of a, a fizzer, actually. We, we spent millions of dollars on a royal commission for a judge to come out and say to us, people should obey the law um, and that uh, you shouldn't be bad to your customers and that if regulators think that people are doing the wrong thing, they should prosecute. Well, that's always um, how the system should work. So I'm actually very surprised how sort of underwhelming the whole thing has been and how everybody's still jumping up and down about what's actually been more or less common sense, I would have thought, in the grand scheme of things. What's, what's interesting is what the report doesn't really seem to look at, which is, is some of the deep, more structural issues in relation to a lack of competition. We know, you know, for example, there's a, a four pillars policy that makes it impossible for uh, low performing banks of the big four, any, if they're underperforming, they can't be taken over or merged. With others, we have a compulsory superannuation system, which of course provides a guaranteed revenue stream uh, to financial institutions and also the implicit go government guarantee of, of the major banks that if they go under in the event of a crisis, we all know that taxpayer funds are going to be used to bail them out. And so those are the kinds of issues that uh, any kind of inquiry into the financial sector should be investigating. You, they, those things weren't, however, in the in the terms of reference, but uh, they should have been, mm. I think, as, as you say, because uh, I think fundamentally the most of the issues that we've seen 
are driven by the regulation of the banks, uh, the regulated oligopoly that we have and the fact that they've been making, I think, super normal profits, which means they go around buying up everything else. So it's called a bank, you know, people think of it as a banking royal commission and misconduct by banks, but really it's their wealth management arms, the fact that they've had uh, financial planners on staff, supposedly providing independent advice, but also pumping their own products. And that's where most of this misconduct is occurred. So if you had more competition in the banking sector, uh, if the profits uh, weren't so comfortably made, and you wouldn't then also uh, see these cultural issues, the so-called cultural issues, the wax at the NAB for arrogance. NAB chairman Ken Henry might, may well deserve it, but you can only sit there looking pompous when you're making fantastic regular profits every year. So they were excluded from the terms of reference. Hain did his job. This has really been Royal Commission as therapy. <laughs> yeah, there, there are two there are two sorts of banking inquiries in Australian history. Um, there's the, uh, the the prudential style, the ones that are looking at how the banking system is actually structured. You know, are we regulating them? Is are capital markets safe? Are they efficient? And so forth. And and we had a banking inquiry very recently that did precisely that. precisely that. This is. And has always been, as you say, an exercise in catharsis. So the whole point of this Banking Royal Commission from day one, when Senator Wacker Williams, John Wacker Williams, was proposing a Banking Royal Commission, it was in order to get a lot of disconnected stories about people who have been unhappy with their banks from any aspect, anybody who's be, who feels that they've been hard done by, by the banks, this is an opportunity to share. Now, we've done this in the past. In Australian history, we did this again in the early 1990s. The Howard government very cleverly managed to avoid turning its Wallace inquiry into one of these exercises in catharsis. But what is positive to, to the... I, I think there are some bad things in this report, and we might talk a little bit about some of the, the negative regulatory choices that have been made. But the positive thing is that we haven't come out of this really large theatrical dance around banking regulation with significantly worse proposals mm. and you no. talk about um you talk about hardship to consumers well i have in my hot little hands here <laughs> a, uh, a story good uh, sound effects from, you know you won't need to add that in in post it's uh <laughs> just making your job easier james just um a story from a 24 year old who um was upset she borrowed uh eighteen and a half thousand dollars for a loan to travel around europe as you do and she was upset when she found out well i can't repay this loan because i don't have a job uh, and she was upset that the bank wouldn't lower her interest rate on the, on the repayment. So she had to get the old bank of mum and dad to help her out. So I'm not sure that's the kind of victimisation that, that's taking place in the banking, banking sector that justifies more regulation. Unfortunately, there's going to be more of that victimisation because we are now going to have debt forgiveness and interest rate forgiveness for farmers who can't actually pay back loans. Um, so I actually think uh, a lot of the political impetus came from John Wacker Williams and his friends in the National Party. Um, I actually think they're going to find that many of their constituents are going to be struggling to get a bank loan going forward. So that's actually not such a good thing that will have come out for their customers. Um, but on the other hand, it'll actually make a, a lot of the uh, subsidies that we give to certain industries a lot more explicit. I want to I want to talk a little bit about one of the big aspects in the the Royal Commission, which is the the emphasis on culture. So. Um, 
um, in the wake of the global financial crisis, we had a lot of rethinking of banking regulations and so forth. But now that discussion seems to have moved across to, do the banks have a bad culture? Is there a profit-maximising culture? The, the coalition government has introduced a banking executive accountability regime. Um, uh, and, and it seems like regulators now, particularly in the banking sector, but also in other regulated sectors like insurance and so forth, are interested in looking inside the souls of these organisations. Um, I, I think this is a, deep, a fundamentally dangerous thing. Well, if we're going to start off with the perspective that the people who infest Parliament House are now going to be telling the rest of us uh, <laughs> that we have a bad culture, I mean, I think that's a big cheek to start off with. Uh, the second big cheek to start off with is who's going to be investigating this culture. Um, the Royal Commission basically said to us, nobody quite knows what APRA does, and um, ASIC's been asleep at the wheel. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to be saying, oh, you've got a bad culture, which becomes a catch-all, oh, we don't know what's wrong with you, but but we're going to whack you anyway. It's, it's almost like the perceived conflict of interest thing that people get whacked with now. And uh, one of the points of that is when regulators are enforcing culture, all that does is regulate a particular kind of culture. There's Very it bad culture. Very bad. And, and really the point about uh, a free enterprise system is you do have to form a culture when you have an organisation. That's part of, the, part of your competitive stance if that turns out to be a bad culture, one that negatively impacts customers in a transparent environment, you will get caught out and hopefully you will be driven into bankruptcy and replaced by a culture that is more fit for purpose. So the idea that APRA or ASIC or whatever ridiculous regulator is going to be charged with enforcing this, and I should give a plug actually to a column that John Roscombe wrote on this, which we'll put up uh, in links, but uh, it's crazy stuff. And, and related to that, one of the big issues that's not talked about is the revolving door between regulators and the regulated actors. So we know that uh, people frequently move between APRA, ASIC and, and the entities that they're meant to be regulating and that clearly creates a conflict of interest. It clearly means that they have an incentive to be creating opaque, complex regulations that only they, the developers of the regulation and the enforcers of it, really understand because what that does is it increases their market value. So when they do go to work at the regulated enterprises, that they can command a wage premium as a result of that. And that is uh, interestingly missing from the discussion. What it does is give the regulators a lot more discretion about, so that they, if, if you look, if the government is look or regulators are looking into the souls of a corporation they say well no no you've got a bad culture i don't like the way you host friday drinks or something uh, uh, you, you know you, you've got bad attitudes then it allows them or gives them the capacity to make discretionary choices about um how they're going to be regulated how the regulator is going to impose um, uh, conditions on various activities and so forth. Um, and that's that's actually really dangerous. And in, from a long-term perspective, that's the sort of regime uncertainty we'll start, we'll start to see regime uncertainty where we don't really know how the regulator is going to respond to various corporate decisions. If it's not written down in law, if it's not clear in regulation, if it just says, well, the regulator will make a decision about your culture, then it's going to be harder to make those decisions. Investment is going to slow. We're not going to, it's going to be really hard to unpack that after yes. the fact, but it's it, it's really quite dangerous. Although to, to, to be fair to Hayne, he did actually say that regulation should be clear and simple to understand. 
Um, but of course, he also said he doesn't have to worry about unintended consequences. Now, when your <laughs> job <laughs> when your job has been a judge and your salary is guaranteed by the constitution and paid out of tax revenue, of course, you don't have to worry about <laughs> unintended consequences. So, um, it, yes, it's 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 all very well him sort of you know pronouncing from on high and then disappearing. But I actually think that some of these uh, some of his recommendations, if implemented, are actually going to make life a lot harder for for young people to get loans, certainly for farmers to get a loan. I would Sensing. If any of that gets introduced. Well, that's already happened. I mean, as part of a broader crackdown yes. on credit. And, I think there's going to be more of it. And uh, actually, I did look up uh, John Wacker Williams, and I, uh, it could be rent-seeking, but I must admit, we, uh, uh, Chris and I, along with John Roskin, just interviewed uh, Andrew Roberts, the author of Churchill, forthcoming podcast. And uh, we did wax a little bit lyrical about that. Uh, parliamentarians who would actually stand up for what they believe and fight and kick and gouge even when their lead, their party leaders were telling them to sit down and shut up. So I do have a sneaking admiration for John Wacker Williams in the fact that he did not sit down and shut up. That, that's very true. I, I want to make a, a, a second point to Sinclair's, which is that this this is a creature of the judiciary. Yes. So this is a creature of 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 law. It's been run by lawyers. Um, uh, some people have gotten very famous um, uh, as, as, as lawyers as part of this Royal Commission and it's hunting for wrongdoing. No, no, there's a role for that. But that's not how we should be structuring our financial system. It's This is not – we don't want to hand the economy over to lawyers who are looking for the worst-case scenario and structuring incentives and structuring um, financial instruments on that basis. Uh, traditionally in Australia, the um, – Financial inquiries that have been most significant and most beneficial have not been run by lawyers. They've been run by economists, and you know this is a group of mostly economists in here. So I'm not wise gonna, people, wi- wise, very, very bright <laughs> guardians. people, guardians, <laughs> guardians of the public good. But but fundamentally, when we're talking about um, the economy, we should not be handing that over to a judicial inquiry. Which is again why I'm I'm glad that the the Royal Commission just didn't go that far. And, and I say, I think what, well, what we've had so far has been a witch hunt, and now we're going to go into the show trial uh, phase. So it's, it's going to be very interesting in the next while to, to see how it all and, unfolds. And, and the first uh, one on the dock is uh, Andrew. Ken Henry. Uh, and and uh, his CEO, uh, Thorben. Yes. Certainly um, looking at that. This week, Facebook suspended the account of Jacinta Price, the Alice Springs town councillor, which has put the spotlight back on regulation of social media. Yeah, so so Facebook has actually now apologised to Jacinta Price. She's a federal candidate for the country Liberal Party um, for shutting her Facebook. What she was doing was naming and shaming online trolls. And on the Young IPA podcast I listened to last night, um, Gideon Rosner had um, some really interesting things to say about that. I think it's worth us having a little bit of a broader discussion, though, because this comes in the context of really widespread accusations, particularly in the US, that major social media platforms and other services are censoring conservatives or other non-left voices. And also in the context of the ACCC, so the Australian Consumer and Competition Regulator, investigating digital platforms for quasi-monopolistic um, uh, positions in search, advertising, and social media as well. What we're seeing right now in um, uh, in the centre right, amongst some many conservatives, is a, a belief that we need to start regulating 
what I think are private sector organizations or private organizations in order to redress some sort of censorship or redress some sort of balance. I think I think that's a that's a really interesting shift in um, political thought on the right, and I thought um, it would be worth having a conversation about. Yeah, so I'm not quite there yet that government should be stepping in to regulate um, Facebook or any other technology company that's censoring conservatives or accused of such, mostly because I think um, even if we were going to go down that path, the, the outcome's not going to be any better for us because the bureaucrats aren't going to be on our side anyway. So I'm not convinced the alternative is going to be much better. But there is a real serious problem with the censorship of major technology companies of certain forms of political thought. Um, if you, as a conservative, cannot get your voice out on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, the reality is that your audience is diminished and it is more difficult uh, to put your point of view um, across. But I think the best solution to this is what has been proposed by Jordan Peterson and David Rubin with regards to Patreon. Now, Patreon is a, a, a sort of intermediary service that allows people to crowdfund um, uh, from, from the community and for people that are interested in, in what they're doing. And Patreon uh, banned uh, someone uh, that goes by the name of a Sargon of Akkad uh, on YouTube. He's a prominent YouTuber and they banned him from Patreon and then diminished his ability to earn an income and therefore to have a voice in the public debate. Uh, and in response to that, both Peterson and Rubin, who, earned a, who recently until they left, earned a significant amount of their income from Patreon, said, look, this has gone too far. We're leaving Patreon and we're going to start up our own alternative um, intermediary service. So I think conservatives who are concerned um, about what's happening with Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube should see the extent to which they can set up alternative competing platforms. I actually have a lot of sympathy for, 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 for Facebook in this particular regard because there is a lot of, of speech out there that is pretty gross and disgusting and it is private property and they don't want it on there. And I, I think the, the case with price is a case of a lack of local knowledge. So if you have people in the United States monitoring language and they start seeing stuff through and they don't have any local context to place that language in context, um, that we might actually see stuff like that. I think I've been shocked actually to see the numbers of people involved in this process and it was really kicked off as you say by concerns about general content not necessarily political content then there was the wash up of the uh, election of Trump where it was all blamed on the Russian manipulation YouTube and Facebook were both talking about getting something like 10,000 additional people to be content reviewers to to take out the you know the, the filth but also and I think once you create that critical mass of people the politics is washed up and, and, and two interesting theories I've heard recently. The first that happens is this is a Silicon Valley tech culture. So these are binary people. There is good and bad. If you tell them to look out for racist content and they see someone like Jacinta Price saying, you know, Aboriginal people should be doing X, yes. it's like a trigger. And then and they don't know that she about... herself is Aboriginal. So it's, it's, it's yeah. It's it's that's right. A and lack then, of local knowledge. And then uh, what's even more scary is the, uh, the the proposed solution that's coming out of Silicon Valley is we need more AI to to make those decisions for us. <laughs> no, no, I think I think we probably do need more AI. Well, just the, as the, a general rule, the experience <laughs> with AI, however, is not very good. I mean, I think they they once unleashed one on Twitter, and the AI itself became racist. Pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so. You guys are giving them a bit of a pass, aren't you? I mean, yes. it's only ever it's only ever conservative opinion. There's never if you see slanders about you know white men, that's never censored. This 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 might be a fundamental disagreement. I am willing to give a private sector organisation a pass on 
on their own editorial decisions, whether I like them or not. I don't think it's helpful for the conservative movement, for people on the centre-right to mount the same arguments that the left has been mounting about the corporate mainstream media and closing out alternative voices for decades for us to take those arguments, pop them on a new media and just and, and say, oh, but we don't want to regulate them, of course. We don't want to regulate them. Yeah. Unfortunately, what we've seen, I think, in the United States is um, a sort of a little ideological shift where people are, oh, you know, well, we don't really want to regulate them moving on to maybe a little bit of regulation would be okay. And ultimately, we're, we're abandoning the, um, uh, the sort of liberal free speech yeah. values that we need. Our regulation is saving civilization, Christopher. Their regulation is bad. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think... I know you're being Dan, facetious, Dan's but that's got, actually true. <laughs> Dan, we, are, we are the custodians. You have got culture. the solution, Dan. If you don't like it, start up your own Facebook. Start up your own Twitter. You know, become an entrepreneur yourself and not a whinger. Well, my, one of my concerns here is really the extent to which we're taking, taking a gun into a... Uh, taking a knife into a gun uh, a gunfight. So... We say, oh, well, free speech, free speech. Oh, I love free speech. Um, but the other side don't love free speech. And can you win a, a broad political battle when uh, the, the, the weapons and the mechanisms to win that are taken from you? And I think there is a real question about that. I think we're at, we are going to see action. I think they're, they're, it's not necessarily a holus bolus move to regulation of platforms, but in, in virtually any other industry that's developed, uh, the first step is you know, jawboning by politicians. And then whenever people like us are sitting around saying, you don't need to regulate the industry, you know that the industry is on the verge of regulation. And the, the models don't have to be a government agency sitting in judgment on everything. But at the very least, there needs to be transparency, opportunities for appeal, uh, and not just driven by you know, high-profile politicised things like Jacinta Price's case, uh, I've worked in the energy sector and where the you know, ombudsmen are independent of government, uh, companies are required to have uh, codes that they implement and that are publicly available. This is the, at the very least, I think there is a, a very good argument for that and because the alternative is just, I think, free reign and... Uh, and it is too important for that. They are too important for our culture. Well, so that, that's the ACCC's view. So the ACCC, um, in its preliminary report to the Digital Platforms Inquiry, um, which I'm doing some work on at the moment, um, has argued that we need a new regulator to manage or um, observe algorithms, the internal algorithms of some of these social media um, uh, networks, the internal, uh, internal search algorithms run by Google and so forth, as well as some sort of observation over that, that would allow them to prevent fake news um, on these. Um, and of course, the ACCC would like the power to do so at an international so level. Rod Sims will decide what is fake news. Rod Sims will decide what is fake news. What, what's the business case or the uh, public justification for addressing fake news at all? Well, to, because fake news leads to a less informed except, uh, population and so but forth. It's, it's, the, the, it's the standard stuff. But we, we are we are. We have been so deeply opposed to government regulation of the media sector from Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act debate to the Gillard government's um, proposals to reform the media sector to the Human Rights and Anti-Discrimination Bill in 2012. I don't think that we should be abandoning that really high, clear principle that the government should not be involved in the way we come to opinions about the government. I think it also needs to be recognised that there are structural issues with the kind of people that go into media. 
So if you look at the average person that goes into journalism school at a university, for example, they're much more likely to be of the left, of a left-wing bent. Now, that's not justification for regulating the end outcome, but it does raise questions as to why it is that only people of that nature are involved in disseminating information. Um, and and the quality, I mean, you look at the, the quality of what comes on uh, feeds from like CNN, for example, where they're actually saying a guy who's a Democrat, they're saying he is actually a Republican. I mean, you've got this absolutely absurd outcomes going on. Well, yes, but the, the market is clearing. I mean, we, we've seen the disappearance of Fairfax Media. Uh, we see the declining audiences of the ABC. And the rise of Channel 9 newspapers. Well, <laughs> BuzzFeed's yeah, in yeah. trouble. Um, and all, and so, so all these all these horrific, biased, left-wing media outlets are actually being abandoned by the market. So they're, they're, the market is clearing. So it's, I, I suspect it's not really a problem for, for, for politicians and regulators to think about at all. Um, it turns out they've got a whole banking sector to worry about. I think it's really interesting to um, look at what's going on in the United States about this. The United States are much deeper, um, a larger population, but a much deeper market for media. And there are clearly conservative and explicitly conservative-leaning news organisations. And what they have in the US seems to be a, a, a good career pipeline. If you're a young conservative or writer-centred journalist, then then you, you get training in the, in the smaller organisations and you can move all the way up to, you know, the Washington Examiner or, or Fox news or, or, or something like that and I think there's opportunities um, uh, there that they just that we just don't have here that in part might just be an entrepreneurial opportunity I think Australian conservatives or people on the center right should be thinking more about setting up their own outlets um, but it's also a bit of a role for for you know us as well I think we have to spend more time trying to train up new journalists new thinkers new intellectuals in order to to fight those 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 debates I mean it doesn't help that we've got an ABC one billion dollar organization that Sinclair and I as listeners will know have a new book about um, <laughs> just uh, get that against uh, public in, book. in time for Christmas in time for, <laughs> in time for all Christmases um, uh, but uh, but I think there's an opportunity uh, entrepreneurial opportunity that we really need to be trying to capture I couldn't agree more with that and that was something that happened with radio. We know that conservatives pioneered talk about radio in the 80s, people like Rush Limbaugh in America and Alan Jones here as an example. So, and that's why a lot of people on the left hate talk about radio because it is really mostly dominated by, by the right. So that may well be the future for, for online, online version of how conservatives can, can dominate a, a subset of the internet. And, and podcasts. Like Cadillacy yeah. Files and podcasts, podcasts. And, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff and there's a lot of very strange stuff on YouTube as well. And there are a lot of people doing interesting experiments and trying to figure out what that media until ecosystem looks like mm -hmm. until, until, they, until they're shut down. And that's why the IPA is so interested in digital uh, work, whether it be uh, audio or visual and or visual. But the search for regulation never seems to end when it comes to the uh, the swamp and the latest field that they're looking at is of course sports and sports wagering yeah so the um government is poised to announce um uh, poised to announce a new national sports integrity commission according to um <laughs> what used to be called fairfax newspapers uh, but i found this story in the age so according to channel nine um uh, this new sports integrity commission it will have and I quote, sweeping new anti-corruption regime overseen by this national watchdog to respond to risks to sporting integrity caused by the expansion of online and on unregulated betting markets. We're also going to see new and increased powers given to the anti-doping 
regulator. This is the regulatory state intruding where it absolutely should not. We're talking about private sector organizations, sports organ- uh, sports bodies, sporting bodies are private sector governance organizations. What on earth, Sinclair, is the government doing in this space? Creating jobs for otherwise unemployable people. Um, that's that's actually what a lot of the regulatory sector does. Um, that's your one, generic answer to most one, questions. Yes, yes. One of the, the, the most successful sporting organisations, if you want to call it, was the World Wide Wrestling Federation. And many years ago, they changed their name from the WWF, not because it was confused with, with, with panda bears, but because they, they changed them from the WWF to the WWE. And they actually came out and said to the world, we are not doing sport. Sport is not wrestling. We are doing entertainment. And I so wish that a lot of sporting organizations and codes would come out and do precisely the same thing. When you go to the circus, nobody complains that they're on on drugs or whatever it is that they're doing because they're entertaining you. All of a sudden, people come along and say, oh, sport, we actually have to change our minds. Now, the government's interest in sport actually goes back to the bad old days when the government wanted to conscript its male population in order to fight wars. So the government wanted to have a fit and healthy population, and that's why they encourage sport. So this is all about violence. Um, if we change that, and, and that's why they've got an interest, if we actually came out and said, no, we actually want to be entertained, we don't care about anything else, leave us alone, it would take the wind out of their sails. It will all go away. I have a slightly different take, but I might end up in the same place. We'll see how it goes, which is I think the underlying factor that's driven these kind of interventions is actually the professionalization of sport. Sport was always an amateur thing that you would do, not as a vocation. It's only really been over the last 20, 30 years where you've had a professionalization of sport. And you see that. You look at how the AFL has changed. It's much more a professional organization. Everybody's fit. No one's drinking beers after the game or drinking beers down at fine leg. Uh, when you're playing cricket, it's, it's much more professionalized and it has become more of a vocation uh, and something that's taken more seriously as a serious career and a serious job. So I think the change from an amateur uh, undertaking to a professional undertaking is something that changes the mindset. Not that that justifies the regulation, but I think that changes people's mindset over what sport actually is. I don't know about that. I, I think the the idea of you know the, the sporting amateur was really a sort of a late Victorian ideal. If you look at the early days of a cricket, a, a, a game you love, played. Um, WG, even in the time of WG Grace, they were betting on everything on the sidelines. They would bet on the next ball. And the fact that that created all kinds of incentives to cheat. It was just like if you're dumb enough to place a bet on whether the next ball's going to be a no ball or a white, that's, that's your own stupid business. I, so I agree that Sink's right to look for the argument from interest. But the word that jumps out at me in all of this, and and there was an earlier review, and uh, was called the review of Australia's sports integrity arrangements that reported in May last year, and that's that was the precursor to the um, Nine Network story that Chris quoted. The active word for me is wagering. The argument from interest is actually about governments wanting the, the revenues from wagering and uh, wanting to create that perception of integrity because, God God forbid, you could just have people betting with each other about the outcomes of sporting And not events. paying tax. And not paying <laughs> tax. They wouldn't, Shocking. There's no clip for the government. And it's, it's like, well, <laughs> it's like only Krusty the Clown bets on wrestling and, uh, who, and he'd be equally stupid to bet on cricket. Yeah, this is uh, – I think that's a really good point. I mean, this is fundamentally a moral panic story. Um, uh, it's a moral panic story from the exist. I mean, it, we've always been worried about 
um, gambling in Australia. We've always had a um, a, a nanny state around gambling. Um, now that there exists ways that the government just can't regulate, can't send police into gambling houses because of the internet. Um, this is this is the government's response. We've had ten years of furious debate about what are we going to do of the about these online gambling sites that are set up in the Isle of Man and so forth that the poor old government can't get its hands on um, uh, in, in Northern Territory as well. Um, the 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 government really is hostile to the traditional Australian pastime of being financially involved in the sports you're watching. It's a big part and has always been a big part of Australian culture and the government has always hated it. So you're saying the Australian government has been un-Australian? Yeah, no, that's precisely yes, right. Yes, yes. But you see, as, a, as an Essendon fan, I, I also have very other strong views about this sort of thing because um, all the anti-doping, all the sort of stuff actually imposes foreign values onto Australia. So we actually had Australian sports people... <laughs> on traditional Australian doping. <laughs> we had... We, we actually... Well, Good Aussie doping. Good Aussie we had Australian <laughs> nationals being prosecuted under foreign laws in foreign countries under for, in foreign languages um, because the Howard government at the last second signed up to some silly anti-doping integrity measure in, in 2006. Well, you'll love this then, Sink, because I did look <laughs> at that review from May last year. I, I looked at a couple of fact sheets anyway that counts as research. And uh, one of the driving reasons as far as the review is concerned, and now Cabinet seems to have accepted for doing this, is so that we can join the Makalin Convention, named after some presumably very pleasant town in Switzerland where they negotiated this agreement. It's a Council of Europe convention on the manipulation of sports competitions. Presumably that means they're against manipulation of sports <laughs> yes, competitions. Facilitating it. But uh, yeah, th this is supposed to get the parliament exercised about why we should do that so that we can join a Council of Europe treaty. You know, uh, our, our cousins in the United Kingdom are leaving the European Union. Yes, no, we're joining and, it. And, and we should too, and the United Nations while we're at it. <laughs> one, one thing that Singh touches on, which I think is really important, is the symbiotic relationship between professional sport and governments. And, and the AFL is the absolute worst. We know that the AFL receives a whole series of, of benefits, financial and otherwise, from governments. Uh, and in, re in return for that, they promote government agendas. That's why whenever you go to the AFL, every second round is about something other than the actual game itself. It's always promoting some government agenda, uh, and they're always in cahoots with one another for the for the special favours that, that come for that. Now, the AFL has been very successful. If you look at the success of the AFL compared to rugby, um, it's been a successful business model, but I think the game has been very badly damaged from it. I think that what you're calling government agenda, they call building civil society. <laughs> building civil society. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But yeah, look, it, it, it is an absolute rot. Um, and we should actually divorce civil society as much as we can from the government whose only job, more or less, is to protect us from invasion from foreigners and, of course, to prevent Australian citizens from being harassed by foreign laws in Australia. But is there a public demand for this? I, it, it strikes me that this is politicians trying to follow i mean the public likes sport the yes. public likes their sport to be you know to have integrity um and it strikes me that the politicians are just trying to chase what um they know is already popular it's it there, is very good to stand there is in a an very, afl there is a very strong puritan streak that runs through the english-speaking world and the whole story about let's ban bear baiting because uh, um, people enjoy watching it as opposed to it annoys the bear um, there, there is this very strong Puritan streak that runs through the English-speaking world. So governments come along and say public morals are being undermined by 
gamblers. And of course, we all know gamblers are terrible, wrong people who are, who are really addicted or diseased or there's something wrong with them. <laughs> and we're going to help them live better, pure lives. Um, so there probably is. And if there isn't, they can certainly create it. And there's going to be very few people who are going to argue against bad things like gambling. Look, I have a little bit of a different take on this. So I'm not concerned about spectators gambling on sport, but I am concerned about players betting on their own games and the effect that that can have on the integrity of the game and the enjoyment of the game uh, for spectators. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean government should be doing it. I think that the sporting codes and bodies themselves should be very proactive, but we know that there are always going to be temptations uh, from the sporting bodies themselves um, to be involved as well. But this is the employer's job. So um, let, let, let's imagine there, there's a scandal. The, the South African cricket team a few years ago was involved in, in a scandal. Um, that was primarily a, a matter for the, the South African cricket board as the employer of these players. Um, last year when they were using sandpaper to change the ball, um, that was to win. Um, that's uh, an Australian cricket board thing. So is the, the, the employer. Now, employers have to monitor their employees at all times that you, you, you don't lie, steal, cheat, give away you know, the, the company's product. Um, that's exactly the same thing. You, you're giving away the company's product if you throw a game or you, or you, you gamble on a game. So um, a straightforward employment law solution to that problem. Yeah, the, and this is, I mean, in a funny way, this is the same as the Facebook discussion. That, uh, that, that may well be a serious problem right now, but asking the government to, to fix that problem for us just invites the government into every nook and cranny of modern society. This is why we have so much regulation. We're trying to get the government to enforce private rules. There's nothing more private than a sporting code. They made those rules up. They can change those rules at any time. It's a private organization. It's a private governance organization. It is not the job of the government to get involved because that's just asking them to, to, to surveil us, to watch everything we do, to watch what we do at work, on the internet and in sport. And as a last point, if they allow doping in professional sports, do you know the medical advances which would occur? Um, so there's actually a negative externality to society by banning doping. We would have such fantastic drugs to dealing with injuries and recovery periods and stuff like that. So I would be saying bring it on, actually. Speaking of sport, it's time for that part of the podcast where we play a bit of chaos ball. We throw it open to panellists to talk about what they've been reading, watching and listening to. Yeah, so I've been uh, watching The Americans, the um, uh, TV show that I think is now on DVD and you can purchase in the stores. But um, uh, the, the Americans is a show, if you're not familiar with it, about two Russian spies, two married Russian spies operating in the United States um, uh, in the 1980s, uh, in the Reagan years. Um, it's, a, it's a really good show. I've got a couple of points to make about it. First of all, um, uh, I think being a spy would be really, really stressful. I just, I'm not sure I can do this. So are they married to each other? They're married to each other, ah. yep. So it's actually a show, I mean, fundamentally it's a show about marriage okay. because it's two people married to each other in extreme situations. But it's really, so it, it first aired in 2013. It's really interesting in retrospect or it's really interesting in context because it, it, 2013 is an interesting time to set up a show about Russian spies in the United States. You'll remember um, during the 2012 election that Mitt Romney was talking about Russia as our number one geopolitical 
opponent, and he was widely, widely mocked for that. Um, Barack Obama um, thought this was ridiculous. How could you not be saying terrorist terrorism is our biggest problem? Um, to watch this show that I guess in 2013 was sort of a bit alien from the modern world, to watch this show in the middle of all these debates about Donald Trump and Russian hacking and spy scandals and people being arrested for, for doing spy things um, is a really, really strange um uh, phenomenon and 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 does give it that extra layer. It's a fantastic show on its own behalf, but it's really interesting to watch right now. So, I was on a plane recently and I watched Black Panther. Now, Black Panther came out last year. It's I loved it. It is a magnificent movie. But then I like superhero stories, so I'm probably a bit biased. But it's also been nominated for for an Academy Award, um, and I think it's the first serious superhero movie that's ever been nominated. So I'm 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 kind of holding thumbs. But what struck me is the economics of the story is wrong. Okay, so we've got a superhero, and he comes from Wakanda, and he gets his powers, or Wakanda gets all its wealth from uh, a substance called vibranium, which came from an asteroid strike on the Earth many, many, many millions of years ago. In the story, Wakanda is a very, very poor African country. It's got a tiny population, but in actual fact, they are hiding from the world that they are phenomenally rich. The only product that they have to sell is this vibranium, which they, generally speaking, don't really sell. So the problem is, if they've got such a small internal economy, they don't trade with the outside world, where does their wealth come from? And that's completely unexplained. So most people are not going to notice this. They're not going to care. And it Did, did you shout this out uh, while, while you were watching it? You know, the host is always It's all turkey. All turkey doesn't work. Um, behave, sit down, or we'll have to notify the authorities. It's always so, you know. Drag off the plane again. <laughs> yes. But, but what really struck me is that I watch many historical movies and the history of it is wrong. And I know the history is wrong and I don't really care because it's still a good story. And so I was kind of thinking, gee, the economics of this being wrong really annoys me. Now, I think we actually have to start having movies at the end where they say, you know, the, the history of the movie was, was, was given by, by Dr. Whoever. They should actually start having economists on movies, actually making sure that the, the economics of the story is, is sound. But nonetheless, I love the movie. Uh, looking forward to the, 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 the sequel. So in, in, in the Marvel world, though, they've got, a, uh, th there's a suggestion that they've got some pretty good economics. So um, the new Avengers sequel, the first ad for the Avengers, the, the, the next Super Avengers, Bowl, yes. was at the Super Bowl. And um, a, in the previous Avengers movie, it's not spoiling much to say that half the world population is decimated. Murdered is by an environmentalist. Murdered by an environmentalist. <laughs> um, and... The result is not, as some people would argue, that suddenly we've got more resources to go around because there are fewer people. Um, you know, we're, we're not dealing with so many um, uh, supply shocks or all that sort of thing. Instead, the the world that comes after a a half end of the population is very very poor, and which it, is exactly what economics would tell you. Well, we actually yes. had a, a, a excellent experiment on that run in the 14th century. It was called the Black Death. Yeah, and, and that, that was that was bad. And they have and, observed and this is why we have economists that, that to real, point out that that was re, bad. real wages did go up though. It did tighten I was going to say real much. wages went up, and as, <laughs> as long as you didn't die, you were okay. Yes, if you're not dead, <laughs> you're actually better off. Yes, that's a, yes, that's yes, a good but, that's a good headline for the next report. But, but the, <laughs> yeah, but the <laughs> we actually all know Chris that they're not really dead because this is like uh, comic books. Uh, we've already seen. Uh, the, no, oh, they're fictional. We've spoiler, already spoiler seen, alert. We've already seen the adverts for the new Spider-Man movie. And so, 
<laughs> no, they, they have to all come back somehow, but... Uh, and I can report that you can look forward to Morgan Begg's take on the uh, on the future, on what's happened at comic books over the last few years in the next IPA review in March. And uh, if you know Morgan Begg, you know that that will be very unique. Take. It'll be fascinating. Um, I'm reading or just finished reading a book by Oren Cass, who was a domestic policy advisor for Mitt Romney, speaking of Mitt Romney, uh, worked in consulting firms, so forth. He's written a book called The Future of Work. Um, it's a really interesting, timely book. Um, he comes at it from from sort of a you know centrist sort of center right um, data kind of perspective, um, but he has some quite interesting takes, and I think there's two key two key arguments he has. I think one is that we have an, a, an unhealthy obsession with GDP, so we always talk about GDP growth, maximising GDP, economic efficiency, uh, and in doing so, policymakers can sometimes lose sight of the fact that there's lots of other things that go on in life other than just maximising GDP, and secondly. There's an obsession with consumption rather than production. Of course, that goes back to economics itself and Adam Smith saying the purpose of production is consumption and that's what we should look at. He says, of course, rising material living standards and lower prices for consumers are important, but also production itself has value, that there's a dignity associated with work and that policy should take into account that um, having work is valuable not just for what it can deliver to consumers, but what it can do for yourself. And it helps, of course, people have self-sustaining families, communities, civil society. It's the underpinning of all of those things which are actually important limitations on the size and scope of government itself because we know a stronger civil society with more people earning their own, their own income is more capable of self-governance and less reliant upon welfare state and regulators. So I thought it was a really, really timely, interesting point. Oren Cass. Oren Cass. Well, up, up until Lord Keynes, actually most the, 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 the classical school did tend to focus on production as opposed to consumption. But there's actually this, this Marxist idea that we're all alienated from our jobs mm. that in actual fact caused a lot of the mischief that took away the notion that there's a social value in working and actually interacting with other people and not just hanging around the house in your pyjamas all day. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that point does need to be made. The, the, the bring back the supply side of the economy, which people have tried to do a few times over the last few decades, but still hasn't really taken off. Yeah, the, the supply side is the side that, that creates the wealth. Uh, the Consumption is the end goal, absolutely, but you can't have just consumption. This is um, uh, you, can't, you can only focus on yes. consumption. This is the, the the basic fallacy behind stimulus packages that if we just consumed more, mm. then the economy will go up. No, we've got huge production problems well, if we I, want to be wealthier. I caused quite a kerfuffle uh, during the, the, the global financial crisis when the ABC in Darwin phoned me up just after the second big stimulus package. And they said to me, if you were a patriotic Australian, how would you spend your $900 check? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I wouldn't presume to tell. And they said, no, no, tell us, what would you do? I said, well, I would go down to the RSL and I would put the $900 check into tokens and put them into a pokey machine and just gamble the money. And they said, oh, my God, how could you possibly be so irresponsible? I said, well, no, the RSL employs people. Uh, they cross-subsidize those meals at the restaurant. The company which makes the pokey machine, Aristocrat Leisure, would probably be benefiting from this as well. They do R&D. We know innovation is good for the economy. So the best thing you can do with your $900 is put it into a pokey machine. And that part of the conversation didn't go to air. And that right? was the last time the ABC called you. <laughs> uh, well, certainly the Darwin ones, yes. And, that, and that's when you decided to write a book saying that it should be privatised. And given away. Given away. <laughs> and give, given, given to the employees. Um, I've been watching Netflix again. I don't know what I'd do in the segment if I didn't have Netflix. It'll be the, the last thing I have just before I hit bankruptcy. Um, get me Roger Stone. Uh, Roger Stone is a... Uh, 
uh, political advisor, campaign manager, sometime lobbyist, um, who has worked for Trump off and on over the years and uh, has recently been arrested uh, by the FBI as part of the Mueller investigation. So uh, I didn't have much of his backstory. And so when this popped up on Netflix, probably not coincidentally, uh, this it's because it's a couple of years old now, but really painted a picture of, picture of a fascinating guy. But it's amazing. Netflix is probably makes the ABC look fair and balanced. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a there's there's a program on Trump. There's a program on Stone. They're interviewing all the same people. It's just a, a complete hit job. And I mean, Stone probably is. They call him amoral, and in a way, he is. He's he's Machiavellian in the sense that the end justifies the means. But actually, he does have a moral. He's been a lifelong Republican. He got energised by the Goldwater campaign when he was 12. So on the one hand, this hit job is saying this man has no morals, but he's only ever worked for Republicans. You can't say that about certain Australian prime ministers I might name um, who happen to swap sides from time to time. <laughs> um, he's only ever worked for one side. And, and then throughout, there's this thing about uh, he was the only one ever to have worked on campaigns who then became a lobbyist, like he invented this. And then he invented PACs and super PACs and almost like he invented lobbying in Washington, D.C. Now, the, Daniel's our resident expert on the on the swamp in, in D.C. and in Australia and I think the lobbyists were there from day one. This is not something that someone like Roger Stone had to invent. No, I mean, and, and the swamp in... in in DC and in Australia is, is is a massive thing of many, many different players. There's no way one individual person could invent all of those special interests coalescing at one time. No, and you, you do that you, you do that in a documentary so that your your character is the most important person. Mm. You know? Oh yeah. and, and of course what, he what talks that way too. He's but, a rabid <laughs> egomaniac. So he I does saw, actually claim credit for yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I saw this as, as you would, yeah. as you should. <laughs> I, I saw this documentary a, a few months ago as well. Um uh, and and what it I, I, I agree with all your criticisms. What I think it emphasised to me is that we have this idea that the Republican Party sort of um, just turned up with Ronald Reagan. So there's the modern Republican Party is the Republican Party of Ronald Reagan. Stone is not one of those characters. He is a he 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 is a complete transition from Goldwater to Nixon to Reagan to Trump. It's the same. Party, it's the same tradition of thought, and and Roger Stone, for all his very strange things and his very strange um, uh, brand, is actually a, a really interesting way to see how we got from Nixon to, but, to but the is, modern Isn't world. that a bit of a Whig history? I mean, because there, there have been paths that haven't worked out well. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely, there have been, and and you can imagine a post Reagan party that was completely different, or a post Bush party party that was completely different. But but it's it's really clear from this from this documentary that um, uh, a, a, about the the nineteen seventies Republican movement and its continuing influence on the Republican mm. Party of today. Yeah, I just say my 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 children have also watched. They watch a lot of Netflix as well. But the documentaries they watch tend to be about serial killers and psychopaths and and things like that. Not politics at all. So you know, they, you actually have more of a choice the, on Netflix I, than you I do. Was the difference is small, though. <laughs> I, I, w- I was actually for this podcast going to try to get through the Ted Bundy documentary. Oh, my which, kids have been watching it. Oh, that's all they can talk about. They're loving it. 
They're loving it. I, my, although my children are pretty older than yours, perhaps. <laughs> so that, that's the one that sparked the moral panic about Ted Bundy being sort of charismatic and that's right. good, yes. good, good looking. Yes. Uh, and look, look, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not already a subscriber to Looking Forward, you can follow the podcast on iTunes, Podbeam, or any of the other great podcast platforms. Also, please look out. Going up within the next 48 hours will be a special edition of Looking Forward. It was an interview with Andrew Roberts, author of the new biography of Churchill, Churchill Walking with Destiny. Andrew Roberts was a guest of the IPA in 2012. He is an absolute ripper and so is his book. The interview was by me, by uh, also Chris Berg and also John Roscombe, executive director of the IPA. So a little bit different, not the panel format, uh, but we had uh, Andrew on the line from Miami and it's a ripper interview and then you can listen to that interview and stick around to the end of the podcast and you'll hear john chris and me also reflecting on the, the themes that we covered in there and some other themes out of the book including what churchill tells us about leadership so do listen to that and then we'll be back with our regular podcast next week i'd like to thank our participants today chris berg sinclair davidson daniel wild and as always our producer james bolt this has been looking forward Brought to you by the IPA. Talk to you next week.